0: better by and by. Good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday of Lent. And just a quick reminder that as we sing songs maybe you're not as familiar with, we choose certain songs that we know that we haven't sung as much, and we put them in your worship order. So we used to put all the songs in the worship order, now we choose the ones that we know you might not know as well. So those are in there for always when you're ready to to look at those. think we might not or just look ahead of time so you know which ones to look at. And you're always welcome to use the hymnal in the pew as well. Isaiah forty, twenty-eight to twenty-nine. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Let's stand and celebrate this great God.
1: As we celebrate Lent, we, we must remember that Lent is really, in church history, is, is a time of consecration. It's a time in which, as believers, we are intentional about doing everything and in our power to be in tune with the heart of God. How about if I tell you that that's part of the definition of what it means to be holy, See, there's two definitions to be holy. Holy is to be completely pure and sinless the way God is. Or, holy is like the Old Testament talks about His people being holy. And the New Testament talks about His people being holy. Meaning, being set apart from something for something. Holiness is not just about restriction of evil things. Holiness is is doing the things that we have to do so we can continue to grow into being into the image of Christ. So Lent is an important season just for that. In the church calendar, it's an important season just for that. And what I want to invite you to consider today is that communion is also kind of a, a tool that we use also for consecration. Because we take the time to stop, to think, to meditate, to think about what Jesus did, and to remember who we have been, what He has done, and who we are in Him today again. So communion, therefore, is for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And today we want to do something a little different. Instead of taking the time... Uh, and reflecting and confessing with our own words and, and thoughts. We want to use a confession, a prayer that John Wesley wrote. So if this is, if you have placed place faith in Jesus Christ, this will be the confession to make right before we participate in communion. Amen? All right, let's, let's profess and confess and make this prayer together. Ready? One, two, three, go. O merciful Father, Father regard not
2: what we have done against you, but what your sincerity has done for us.
1: I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible tells us that on the night when Jesus, he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. You may now also remove the side of the cup where you find uh, the Jews. And in the same night, Jesus also said, "This is the cup, the covenant of my blood with you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Heavenly Father, the confession which is made and the things that we just pleaded for, we did that because we understand that in Jesus Christ, we are already holy. We have been declared righteous and we have been sanctified we have been set apart we have been uh declared free from something the penalty and the power of sin for something to live for you and your glory so just as these elements enter into our system may the gospel of jesus christ that reality that we just proclaim enter into our hearts And make of us people that are fully consecrated to you. And we pray for this in the name of Jesus and the churches.
0: Redeemer, we rejoice in all his attributes and we rehearse them over and over in our minds. That's what we just sang. We can rejoice as the hymn says, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Second Corinthians 5 said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So keeping that in mind, let's look quickly at the verses from number six that we use for a benediction every Sunday in our services, and let's, we're going to take note especially of the last verse. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, and you shall say to them. And this is the part we know. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of israel and i will bless them the last verse that we don't know as well it says that god uses those words that blessing to put his name on us on the people of israel and looking at it through the new testament that jesus has put his name on us that we are in christ that's a very special passage Not just a blessing, but put his name upon us. So as the choir sings those familiar words that we're used to, we can celebrate that God has claimed each of us as his own, his beloved children. This is why we pass the peace in our services. The Lord has given us peace so we can extend it to each other. So let's stand and say to each other, the peace of the Lord be upon you, and then you may be seated.
3: church family. At this time, I want to invite our ushers to the front as we continue in worship with our offering. As a reminder, you can give online at wheatonbible.org forward slash give in the offering plates as they are passed or uh, by sending a check to the church office. Ushers, you may pass the plates. Thank you for your service. For all the latest church family news, look for our weekly e-newsletter, 27W. If you're not already receiving that, you can sign up uh, by using the QR code in front of you uh, or by signing up on our church website. Well, my name is Bill Oberlin. I serve as one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. And as we receive uh, your offerings this morning, I wanted to take a moment to remember and reflect on the practice of generosity modeled by the early church recorded in the book of Acts. Following Christ's resurrection and the moving of the Holy Spirit in the months following, a new kind of community was born in Jerusalem. Numbering in the thousands, the early church was a new family of young and old, rich and poor, including representatives uh, from many nations, radically sharing their resources with one another. In Acts 2, verses 44 through 47, we read, And all who believed were together and shared all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any might have need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people of the city. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. The book of Acts is a narrative. And our sermon series is a summary of God's great story, His grand story. But in these verses do we merely hear an antiquated narrative, an antiquated story. Hopefully we don't simply shrug That's curious, and move on. No, in the Bible, even in narrative, uh, we see the Scriptures lay before us the attitudes and actions of others that can invite us into deeper relationship with God Himself and with one another. So as we continue to hear and reflect on the history that is His story, May God also transform us dramatically in ways as striking as those who comprised the familia of the early church transformed by a generous God. We note the concluding phrase, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their life of joyful shared generosity stemmed from the reality of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It flowed from something inward, but it simultaneously attracted outsiders and moved them to join Christ's community. It's not merely a miracle of shared possessions, but a swelling ingathering of people returning to God. May our generosity also result in more and more people coming to a life-changing knowledge of Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank You as we gather this morning for Your indescribable generosity to us. Lord, we will read in the Scriptures in a moment from Genesis about humanity desiring to make a name for themselves, to elevate themselves, yet they became scattered and divided, disconnected from You and distant from one another. And we, we read in Genesis 12 how you chose one man, one family, Abram and Sarai. You prompted them to become migrants, and you told them that you would do two things in their life, that you would bless them. You would pour out your generosity upon them. But that wasn't the bottom line of your purpose. You told them you would make them a blessing to all the families of the earth. That you would gather in time all nations to yourself in Christ. Lord, we acknowledge that we are often ignorant and arrogant or indifferent to you. Thank you for your mercy, your kindness extended to us in spite of ourselves. Lord, would you open our minds to receive... And would you make clear your truth? Would you open our hearts to receive your blessings and prompt our wills to extend them to others around us? In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapters 11 and 12, uh, would you please stand in reverence for God's Word as we read? <clears throat> from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come. Come. Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth." And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation." And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: all right good morning familia how's everyone doing you look good you look good over there in the east as well i want to welcome you all to wheaton bible church if you're new uh to the church you're visiting for the first time my name is hannibal one of the pastors here and I think this is a great season for us to be a part of the church because we are going through this journey um, uh, through the Bible, uh, a journey that we have called the greatest story, the story of God and his bride, in which we're looking at different passages and events uh, in the narrative of the scriptures that points us to the reality that the Bible is just one single story, which I could say is the greatest story ever told. And, and scholars call this the redemption story. And in this story, as you, if you have been with us, is, uh, this story is divided into four different sections, if you will. You got the creation section in which God shows us the picture of his original design for everything that he created. And you got the false section in which we see how sin entered the world and actually ruined everything beautiful that God had created. But because our God is a God that is unstoppable, he, there's also a section called the redemption section in which we see Jesus and what he came, came to do and how he said he is it that he's going to um, kind of reconstruct and, and restore everything that is broken. But then we got the last section, which I've always found that to be the best section, the most beautiful section of the entire Bible, which is show us what Jesus is going to do once he comes back and everything is made new again right um so it's creation for redemption and restoration and it doesn't matter what part of the bible you choose and what part you could always find yourself in one of those four different sections Uh, it's a really healthy way at least for me to read the bible now, we have already talked about the creation section for the last two weeks. We have been talking about, started talking about the, the, the fall section when, when sin enters the world. Um, and if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about the story of Noah. I didn't give you the whole story because I didn't have the time for that. Nobody has the time to do that in one sermon, right? But that story is known as the flood, and if you remember, we talked about it a little bit. Uh, I gave you a brief description, once again, about what sin is. And I said that sin is dangerous and destructive and disfigured things. And it's contagious and progressive, right? And there's a reason why, at least as Christians, we don't take our sin for granted. Because we know that it's a dangerous thing. Uh, but the beautiful thing about the story of Noah, though, is that not only he paints this picture of what humanity has become because of sin... But it also paints this beautiful picture of a God that stops at nothing. That even though things are terribly wrong, he stops at nothing. That he, his plans and purposes for this creation cannot be stopped by anything at all. And he gives Noah and his family, after he rescues them, the same mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. Which was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, just by looking at that story, just by looking at the narrative of the Bible, there is one verse that I think is important for us to keep in mind. One verse. Actually, I I could honestly say that this is probably my my favorite verse in the Bible. And I know that I've said that 20,000 times, but this time it's true or more true. And I'm going to give you the the version of this verse that, that comes from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Because I think that it makes it so simple and clear. This is Job 42.2. And he says, this is Job talking about God in the midst of his pain and his struggle. He says, I know that you can do anything, he says to God. I know that you can do anything and that no one can stop you. That's a crazy good verse. I know that you can do anything you want to do and that no one can stop you. Actually, I, I think that this is the way we can read the Bible. We, we could see why he said that when sin entered the world, God did not stop his plans. Why is it that he promised a savior? Why is it that then in the story of Noah, he did what he did and then he rescued Noah and his family because God could do whatever he wants to do and nothing or no one can stop him. He will accomplish always his purposes. And it is with that verse in mind, actually with that theme in mind, that I want us to approach the text we read today. Actually, two stories that seem to be two different stories, but that at the end of the day, they are connected. Actually, they are inseparable. That if you really want to understand what happened at the Tower of Babel, which is the, story, the first story we read, not only you need to understand that, but you got to see how is it that that is connected to the story of Abraham, or at least the beginning of the story of Abraham. So these are the three points that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the great tower, the great nation, and the great savior. The great tower, the great nation, and the great savior. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you, whether you're here in the west or in the east. Look at the person next to you and say, say, say something like this. God will, st- will not stop at anything. Oh, no, let me put it this way. More biblical. God cannot be stopped. Go ahead. All right, come back over here. Point number one, the Great Tower. Um, you would think that after the flood and how everything went south, if you will, and how much people died and suffer you would think that things will change. Right? You would think that as human beings, we will get the message. You know, that's why I have an issue when people say, well. If you would only tell me, I would change. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Our issue is more profound. I've used this example 20,000 times, and I'm completely going off the script, so I hope I stick to my time. If that will be true, this is the example, the classic example, Hannibal's example, all right? If that will be true, we will not eat junk food. If information will be enough, we will not eat junk food. Every single junk food we eat, there is somewhere in a piece of paper saying something like, if you eat this, you will die. (laughs) But because that stuff is delicious, man, we still eat it. Because information is not enough, the problem is more profound. I think that that's the way we got to see humanity and we got to see each other. Our problem is more profound than simply information. So as I was prepping for this, I remember something that Kathy Keller once asked uh, her students. She's teaching this lesson about Noah, and she says, guys, can you tell me what is it that went into the ark? And one student says, well, people. And another student says, "Eh, animals. And the other student says, well, food. And all of that stuff is great. But then she stops and says, no, 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 you're missing something. What, What else went into the ark? And the students could not answer. And this is what she says. Sin. Sin also went into the ark. So as good, as as blameless, as righteous Noah was, and maybe his family was just as righteous and blameless, uh, and blameless we know that sin went into the ark, and sin came out of the ark, and that's why we have the story of Babel, of the Tower of Babel. Because our issue is not just information. We don't learn just by lessons. We need truly transformation. So with that in mind, let's start with Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Look at what it says. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And this is simply saying that not only people spoke the same languages, but they said the same language, but they had the same values and the same way of thinking, the same worldview. If I were to put it in a different way, now we are in a season, by the way, 100 years after Noah, just 100 years after Noah, in which people not only have the same language, but I could say, say it like this they had the same love. They loved the same things. They had the same desires. So the question, the most natural question, is what is it that these people loved? Well, the answer is in verse 3, 11, verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks. And then they burn them, and then they, they make these bricks. So here we have a group of people that made these bricks, that they used their talents and abilities to accomplish something. Who are using what God gave them in the first place to accomplish something. But the reason why I'm highlighting the word let us is because I need you to keep that little phrase in your mind because it's going to tell you, tell you a lot about their hearts. So look at now, verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we uh, lest we uh, be dispersed over the face of the whole earth and in this verse alone there's so many things that we could talk about so many things that we could talk about but i only have 2 hours so i'm going to go super fast the first question is this why build a city well a city in that context, and even in this context, maybe, it was a place of protection. It was a place of safety. It was a place of permanent safety. So these people are struggling with security issues. For some reason, they are struggling with security issues. So the next question we gotta ask is why build a tower? Well, this is interesting. The meaning, the, the root of the word tower, means literally this to be great. And he tells you something about their heart. So these people are using their talents and abilities, the ones that the Lord had given them, but not for God's purposes, not to advance his kingdom, but because they want to make themselves great. And that, that becomes even more clear when at the end of the verse he says, we want to make a name for ourselves. So not only they have security issues, but they also have identity or significant issues. See, they're trying, they think that for some, somehow the way that the Lord designed them to be is not enough. So they're trying to build this identity to make a name for themselves. But in addition to that, you see that that they are afraid, which is a fear issue, of being dispersed. So we got a security issue, you have an identity issue, and you have a fear issue. And some of us would say, well, that's not a big deal. You know, we all have security issues, and I would say, amen, right? Some of us struggle with identity a little bit, and I would say, well, amen. And some of us, it's almost normal to be afraid of something, and I would say, well, amen to that. That is not the problem. The problem is not the emotion. The problem is not the concern. That is not the problem. The problem is not building the city. The problem is not building the tower. That is not the problem. The problem is their heart. And you got to ask the question, how come the problem is their heart? what I want you to see is that what they're doing is they're playing God. Does they think that they can't replace God. That they see themselves as demigods. There's a reason why they want to, uh, they're trying to reach heaven. They think that they have the power to be who they wanna to be, to do what they wanna do, that they are the source of their own security and identity and, sec- uh, and everything else. The problem is not that they wanna make, that they want something great. The problem is they wanna make themselves great. And the root of that problem is simply three different, uh, three different words, in my opinion. They had been brainwashed by the spirit of autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency. That was their problem. They thought that they could be autonomous people, independent people from God, and self-sufficient. I can make myself great. I am the source of my own security, I could be what I want to be, I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. Now, somebody, somebody may say, well, Hannibal, it seems like if you're doing AC Jesus, you're bringing your own concept into the Bible, and I would say, no, 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 no. There are actually three different hints in the text that points to this reality. The first example, the first reason why I know that that's the case, that's their heart, is because of the, of the little word I asked you to remember. Let us. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Isn't that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Isn't that the very phrase that God used when he was creating the heavens and the earth? Let us make heaven and earth. Let us make human beings in our image. Let us. And you, you can see that these people, right from the beginning, somehow, they thought that they could be like God. Let us. That's the first hint. Second hint, we find it with the word tower. And as I mentioned before, the fact that they want to build that tower that will reach heaven is also an indicative that they think that they could be in the place of God. Isn't that, wasn't that the same heart of the devil? I could be God. And the third thing that we see in the text is what the word dispersed. Now, this is interesting because at, at a superficial level, surface level, it doesn't seem like a big issue. Unless you remember one thing that God told Adam and Eve and told Noah. You remember that? Be fruitful. multiply and fill the earth why is it that these people don't want to do it see because once you buy into the idea if you have been intoxicated of the idea of autonomy of uh, an independence of self-sufficiency God's plans are no longer your plans it's about me doing what I want to do why do I care what God wants for me or from me I could build my own destiny this is the secular age i can be who i want to be i could be whatever i feel to be nobody tells me what to do even god i get to choose and be who i want to be isn't that the spirit of this age see the stuff that we go in as a culture that's not new that was already there in the tower of bible and the spirit of autonomy and the spirit of independence and the spirit of self-sufficiency This is the crazy thing, that if that is true, and it is, then that not only affects our view of God, not only that affects our view of ourselves, but it also affects our view of others, which is a pattern that we see all throughout the scripture. If you were uh, with us when when we talked about this, you may remember that when, when I was teaching about God calling people to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, I call that, the theological term for that is the cultural mandate, right? It's for us to bring culture, create culture for it, I bring truth and justice and beauty and all these things for the glory of God and the well-being of others. That is a cultural mandate. God gives things for the well-being of others. So we were created not just to be a blessing to ourselves, and we will talk about that later, but also to be a blessing to others, So this is the problem with the secular mentality, which I think it was the problem back then. As much as secular people, so listen, if you're secular, you're here, please keep seeking and keep asking questions. What I want to challenge you, though, is I want you to ask the question, if you have embraced or you have any influence, even as Christians, with this secular mentality, in which we think that we are self-sufficient and independent and we have autonomy, right? That's why everyone talks about freedom, by the way. Because we have bought into the idea that we are autonomous people. So if we have bought into that, I want to make the argument that as much as you want to love people and serve people and do other things for people, you have no foundational beliefs to prove that. You have no foundational beliefs to prove that. Because if you have bought or have been influenced by the autonomy, independence, and self-sufficiency, the only person that really matters to us is us. And with that then, there's other consequences. Not only we forget that we fully depend on God. It's enough, church. But that we also need other people. That's the thing with this. Once God is out of the picture, with God out of the picture, all the humanity is also part of the picture. Not only I am created for the well-being of others, but others are being created for my well-being. And this is the struggle with the secular mentality today. So if this is the message we hear in movies, we see in literature, we sing in songs, we do all of that stuff, that we are the best, that we are awesome, that I don't need anybody. Have you ever gone to Target, to the baby section, in which there's a little t-shirt that says, You are awesome! What, what do you think that means? So this is the ramifications of that. If you're awesome... If you're independent, if you're self-sufficient, if you don't need God or you don't need anybody, why would you even care about people in your life? That's a crazy thought. And if you don't need anybody in your life, then, and this is the problem with secular mentality today, then you are doomed to loneliness and isolation. So I don't know if you follow some of the cultural stuff that is happening, but I mean, I just invite you to see how many books have been written about isolation. It's crazy the amount of studies that have been done and how lonely people are, especially in this part of the world. Like it seems like if the more technology we have, the more accomplishments we have, the more money we have, the, more, the bigger houses and bigger cars and everything bigger we have, the more isolated we have become. So here you got a group of sociologists talking about, well, we gotta, we got to think of technology in different terms. And I would say, well, yeah, amen. Well, you got to work less and then enjoy life more. And I would say, yeah, amen. But that is not going to solve the problem. It will be the hamburger uh, commercial. The problem in our heart, the problem with the secular mentality, the problem with humanity is not just technology, it's not work, it's not business, it's, not, it's our heart. Even as Christians, we have bought into the idea that we are we're autonomous people, that we are independent people, that we are self sufficient. And one of the ways in which you see it is how you relate to other people and how much you allow other people to relate to you. Isn't that crazy? Now, now, all secular people are freaking out. And even secular people are now saying, man, we got to do something. People have forgotten that we were created or designed for relationships. One of those examples, there's a psychologist, um, Dr. Tronick. Um, I believe he's a child psychologist. And he did this study called The Tronick's uh, Still Face Experiment. It's super interesting what he, what he finds. And basically... He is studying the behavior of babies since the very moment they're born and as they grow. So there's a video going around in which you have this baby, maybe like age one, maybe, six months maybe, looking at the mom. And the mother is doing all these beautiful faces, right? And she's being super cute, and he's being super cute, and everyone is super cute in that video. But then she stops. And she has still face. And you could see how this baby starts to be transformed. Because he can't see the affection he needs. And he starts crying out and trying to get her attention. And the mom is just looking at him. And the whole study is to prove that we need people. And that people need us by divine design. By divine design. Of course, as a, as a secular psychologist, he is thinking of solutions. And for me, as a pastor, the solution goes back to us understanding that we are not autonomous. That we are not independent. That we are not self-sufficient. That we were created first and foremost to depend on God. And second, believe it or not, to depend on others. You know what's crazy about this? There are two extremes. We're going to call these the hyper-traditional people. And I'm going to call these the hyper-modern people. To use extremes. Both people would say, we don't need anybody. But that is not true. If you are a hyper-traditional person, you really care about what your family, your heritage, your ethnicity, your group says. Sometimes so much that you sacrifice what God says about you for what they say about you. That will be the traditional group. So they do care. But then the hyper-modern people, they will say, I don't need anybody. I I don't need people's opinions. That is not True. Because even though you try to say that you don't need anybody, you're still looking around to see who's looking at you when you're doing something. Why do you think that social media is so popular? How many of you guys got social media? Really quick. Please raise your hand. How many of you guys post something and then you go back to see who liked it? Because we do care. And you know why we do care? Because we are like that by design. We're supposed to care what God thinks of us because we are not independent. We are not self-sufficient. And we're supposed to care about at least some people think about us because we are not independent. We are not self-sufficient. Can you imagine what would happen to me if I said to my wife, I don't need your opinion? I know, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) So just like in the story of Noah, we have God looking at the reality of his creation and doing what he has to do in order to stop people from self-destruction. So whenever you think about the judgments of God, you have to see them that way. Is what is it that God is doing from, to keep people from self-destruction. Verse 5, verse 6. This is what God says, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they purpose, that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. That's another crazy verse in the Bible, you know. Think about it. This is God saying, these people are so intoxicated with this false idea of autonomy and self Dependence and independence. Self-sufficiency and independence. They have been so affected by their own sin that nothing they set their minds into will stop them. Like they're, they're unstoppable. You know what's the crazy thing about that verse? It's the same verse I read to you at the beginning. That Job applied to God. Now God is applying to sinful people. The same thing that God said about himself. I could do whatever I want and nothing can stop me. God says the same thing about sinful people. Unless I do something, nothing will stop them. Tell me if that is not an evidence of God's grace. So please stop believing that you are good. Man, I must stop believing that I'm good. Because it's only when I see the depravity of my heart, the reality of my heart, that I understand that unless God does something, my sin is unstoppable. So we continue to read the text and then for verses 7 and 9. We didn't print 9, but 7 and 8. You see that God comes down and he brings Confusion. And now they cannot understand each other. And now they're dispersed. And they stop building the city and they still building this tower. And then he gives them the name Babel, which means confused. Now, if we stop the narrative there, then we say, well, then God fixed part of the problem. You know, these people think that they're autonomous, that they're self-sufficient, that they're independent. So now did this thing and now he fixed the problem. But if you have to remember that the the biblical mandate is not just for us not to do wrong things, but to do the right thing. And what God had commanded humanity to do was to fulfill the great cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But because God is a God that cannot be stopped. Not only he's going to fix the, the babel problem, but now he's going to do something to continue to fulfill his purposes. And this is where the story of Abraham comes in. Point number two, the great nation. And this is super ironic to me, at least to me. When you look at this story, you see a group of people that are seeking for greatness. And God takes their greatness away. And now we have a man that is not looking for greatness. And God promised him that he's going to make him great. So look at with me, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And notice that right from the beginning, we can compare and contrast the Tower of Babel, the people in Tower of Babel, and Abraham. You could compare and contrast both of them. And you're going to see how they live by different values, with a different worldview, and with a different heart, different love, different desire. So on one end, the the people at Babel did not want to be dispersed, And here we have God calling Abraham to go. You still with me? On one end, we see the Tower of Babel, uh, a a bunch of people trying to build that city. And here we have God call Abraham to leave his country, to leave his security. On one end, we got the Tower of Babel. Are uh, Trying to build their own security and identity and dealing with their own fears. And here on the other end, we have God calling Abraham to leave his kindred. You know what that means? His pedigree, his fame, his family, his reputation. To leave his father's house, the security of his father's house, which is completely countercultural. And he makes it even more crazy that he tells them to a land that I will show you. You know how crazy that is? Leave everything you are. Leave your reputation. Leave your career. Leave your job. Leave your money. Leave everything you have. By the way, I will let you know where you're going to go later on. That's a crazy call. Especially for American people. Because we are part of a society that has taught us that we make a move. When the plan is secured. Now, I know it's personal, and don't worry. I'm going to get more personal in a second. That, that's a call. That, that's what it means to live by faith. Actually, that is the way we abandon our autonomy and our independence and self-sufficiency. It's when we trust the character of God more than his plan, if you will. Actually, it is when we trust the character of God so we can see his plan. You know, John Calvin, in his commentary of this passage, he says that God is commanding Abraham to leave everything behind. It's almost like if he's calling him to go forth with, his clo- with, with closed eyes. Because that will be the only way Abraham would know that he had given himself completely to God. You see how these are two different spirits, two different mentalities, two different worldviews. And the reason why I mention us as Americans, and of course I'm including myself there, is because really, we, whether you see it or not, I, and this is my invitation for us as a church, that we have been infected by this idea. You want me to get more personal? Okay, you, you asked for it. Why do we worry so much about our future? Is it wrong to care about our future? Of course not. We, we got to be good stewards, man. We got to we to think about that stuff. But if God is the God of our future, and He is, why do you worry so much about your bank account or your retirement plan? Be good, be the good stewards, man. But are you being afraid for what, what will happen in the future? You want me to get more personal? Okay you ask for it why do you care so much about the future of your children isn't our god a god of covenants is it our god a god of promises hasn't god shown you his faithfulness to the very fact that you are here today and here man i i tell you as a pastor as a person i was a youth pastor and as a teacher We are are part of a culture in which parents are so obsessed with the future of their kids. So obsessed that we're willing to sacrifice the most foundational things like church and church people. For the sake of a career, for the sake of a sport, for the sake of a curriculum, for something that will look good in a college application. What's crazy about that. Your kid might not even make it to any of those things. You want me to get more personal? No, I'm going to stop there. (laughs) You see, the only people that fight against the spirit of autonomy and self-sufficiency and independence is the people that know how to trust the heart of God, regardless if we cannot see the land just yet. Are you still with me? Actually, I'm going to make the argument that when we do that, it's one of the ways in how we become great. That's what God told Abraham in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And notice the the, the different definition of greatness. For the Tower of Babel people, greatness meant I have to be my own people. I got to do my own things. I got to conquer my own things. I am the source of my security and significance and satisfaction. I am the person that I need. And here we have a humble man that lost it all, and God says... I'm going to make your name great. But your definition of greatness is going to be completely different to Bible's definition of greatness. Your greatness is going to be just this. I am going to bless you so you could be a blessing. That's greatness. I'm going to bless you so you could be a blessing. At the end of the day, God is saying to this man, it's not about you. It's about me, my plans, my future, my people. I will bless you so you could be a blessing. That pattern... You find all throughout the Bible. This is the reason why God called Adam to be the first, so he could love and serve his wife. This is the reason why he chose the Israelites, so they could be a blessing to the nations. This is the reason why, when a father would die, the older brother would get a double inheritance. So, with his inheritance, he could serve his family, his his clan. This is part of the reason why the Lord gives spiritual gifts, so you could do use those gifts for the common good, the blessing of other people. This is the reason why God calls spiritual leaders. Not to be served, but to serve. This principle of being blessed to be a blessing is all throughout the scriptures. And that is the right definition of greatness. If you want to pursue greatness, learn how to depend on God. Die to yourself. Know that you are not independent, that you are not self-sufficient, and that the very little things we have are given to you for the blessing of others. That's greatness. You know, I heard once a pastor that in his tombs, he says, he says something about uh, along the lines of when I die, uh, my life, I just want to preach the gospel. In my life, I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I remember that, re- reading that, and I'm thinking, I don't want that. I want to preach the gospel. Amen. I don't want to be forgotten. You know why this struggle struggle for me in my heart? Because I forget that the very blessings I have are not mine. It's to be a blessing to others. So, this is the final question. That God actually accomplished his purposes for Abraham? Did he actually become a man that blessed the nations? And I would say, yes, and not yet. Point number three, a great savior. See, part of what we're doing as we read the Bible, as one story, is that you're always going to find how every character in the Bible always points to a greater character, which is the character of Jesus. So look at what it says in verse three. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know that that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Partly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Galatians chapter 3 says that Jesus is the greater Abraham. Another Abraham that had to leave his country and to leave his father. He had to leave heaven and he had to become a human being and another greater abraham that will come and leave everything so he could be a blessing so you and i could be here to give us all the spiritual blessings says colossians the spiritual blessing of being uh, forgiven and sanctified and justified and all those things another greater abraham that will come to build another city the city of god the kingdom of god in which he rescues people that will come also the seeds of abraham which is all believers. So we can contribute to what the Lord is doing in this creation to be a blessing to all the nations, to fulfill the cultural mandate, to use what the Lord has given us to bless other people. But the reason why I said that it's not yet is because we're not going to see the fulfillment of that blessing until Jesus returns. And this is super interesting, beautiful picture that when Jesus returns, we actually get to see in Revelations 5 and 7 All the nations being blessed. People from maybe tribe and language and ethnicity and all these things blessing the Lord together. Being washed by the blood of Jesus. And also in Revelations we see that the great Babel, also called in Revelations Babylon, is finally destroyed. No more sense of autonomy, of independence, and self-sufficiency. You know why that's so important to me? Two things. Number one, it reminds me that the Lord has truly blessed me so I could be a blessing, so I could contribute to what the Lord is doing. But number two, that I know how the story ends. That one day, the fruit of Jesus' labor and the fruit of our labor will be completely fulfilled. Can you imagine that day? Aren't you craving that day? This is when I pray Jesus returns. Please return and make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get to be part of this great story. That you are the God of restoration, that you are the God that transforms, that you are the God that is unstoppable. That you are the God that will accomplish your purposes. Please make us people that participate in that. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, now during this Lent of, during this session of we, we want to take the time to consecrate happen. ourselves. If you have been, if you were here, all right. well, with well, we're going to close with a that
0: song we that about. we hope some of you this know. Song. It's called I Want to Walk as a Child of the Light. And it's a song we haven't sung in a while, so it's in your worship folder if you, haven't, uh, if you would like to look at it, and we will sing together.
3: we conclude our worship gathering this morning, a reminder that we're now walking through the season of Lent as a body of believers. On the purple wall to your right as you exit today, you'll see uh, prompts to prayer, reflection, and spiritual disciplines as we prepare for Good Friday and, and Easter. Uh, pamphlets by the display will guide you into practices that you can Uh, use this week individually with a friend in your small group or a family. Let's conclude with this benediction from Psalm 67. O God, may you be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent to bless all the families of the earth. Amen.